You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We'll be looking, uh, concentrating on verses 15 through 22, but I'm going to read 11 through 22. If you haven't already, we have these little green sheets that have been providing. They're on that table right in the middle. Don't be afraid to get up right now. This is the only time that you should get up during the service. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, But those are the scripture references that we'll be going through today. Um, Once again, the highlighted ones are the ones that I'm going to ask you to turn to, just to give you a heads up. The passage that we have before us is the great uniting of two groups that were previously hostile to each other. And what we're going to see is that in Christ, the impossible becomes possible. Last week, we talked about the means by which these two groups were brought together, namely the blood of Christ. Today, we're going to focus on the end goal, what the end goal is. So this is the very word of God. Praise be to God that he's given us his word to guide us. And so here it is, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's look to him for guidance. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come right now. We just ask that you would be here. Um, We are hard of hearing. we don't see things the way that we should. And so we just pray that you give us eyes to see, that you give us ears to hear. I pray that we would see God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lifted up, and we would see their amazing, amazing attributes and what they have done for us and why they've done that. We praise you, 
We pray for your guidance, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the summer of 2000, uh, my wife and I were on our honeymoon, and we had flown into Rome, and then from Rome we flew to London, and then we were flying back to Rome. The problem when we were flying back to Rome is that our airplane, our flight was delayed by about three to four hours. So when we got back to Rome, it was after midnight and all of the transportation into the city had ceased. Uh, there were taxis there and the line for the taxis was about 200 to 250 people deep. Okay. Uh, my wife said, why don't you stand in line and I'm going to see if there's any other way we can get back to uh, the city. And so she went from person to person and she, here's her plan, here's how she did it. She would walk up to a person and say, do you speak English? And if they said no, she would say, do you speak Spanish? And if they said no, then she would attempt Italian. Okay, so she went from person to person for about... 30 to 45 minutes. It is now one o'clock in the morning. We are tired. We just want to get back to the hotel. So after doing this for a while, she finally saw a guy who was sweeping um, the sidewalk and she went up to him and she said, do you speak English? And he said, no. Do you speak Spanish? And he said, no. At this point, she did not attempt Italian. This is literally what happened. She grabbed the guy by the shirt, shook him down and said, why don't you speak English? At that time, a priest, recognizing the peril that this guy was in, ran over and rescued him. This priest spoke uh, seven different languages and he informed my wife that there is a bus that is coming at two in the morning that will take you into the city. Language is a huge barrier, right? It's a huge barrier. What we see in the opening chapters of the Bible is that the whole world spoke one language. And so in that sense, they were all united. But because of blatant disobedience to God's command to fill the earth, they all wanted to stay there. God came down and he confused the languages. He introduced several different languages. And so these people who were once united were now divided. And they had to find the people who spoke their language. And what they did is they gathered with those people and they went off in all different directions and started to develop all different types of cultures. A further consequence of their sin was that what happened is that these cultures started to see themselves as superior to the other ones and they started to fight against each other and then soon wars ensued as well. The Old Testament records a lot of these battles but something very very interesting happens in the New Testament. What we see is that after Jesus is done with his earthly ministry he ascends into heaven and on the day of Pentecost he sends the Holy Spirit and what happens is that the language barrier is erased. It's erased. These apostles of Jesus who had never spoken a different language, who didn't study these other languages, are suddenly speaking in the language of all the people that are present there. I want you to turn to 
Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 6 through 12, because it, it gives us the, the record of this account. Last week, if you were here, you remember I began my sermon by talking about all of these different people groups, all of the different nations that have existed and, continue, and, and currently exist, the, 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 the male and the female as well, um, every kind of group that we could talk about. We, we mentioned a, a several of them last week. Luke, the author of Acts, does a similar thing here in Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 6, says this, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And, and, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judah and, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that all of the previous barriers that were erected because of sin were now being torn down in Christ. The language barrier was reversed, and soon the cultural barriers would begin to be reversed as well. Now, obviously, the, this world is still filled with many different languages and cultures, and there's still uh, that, that language barriers and those cultural barriers that we have. But at Pentecost, I saw, we see kind of like the first fruits of what God was doing and what God was going to do as more and more walls of separation would be torn down as the gospel went forth. When we lived in Mexico for four months, we would go to church, we would go to a worship service, sometimes we would go to an, a Spanish-only speaking worship service, sometimes we would go to a bilingual one. And it was so amazing, I'm going to tell you, times when I didn't understand what they were saying, what the pastor was saying, or, you know, just getting every, you know, fifth or sixth word and understanding that, and listening to songs, different language, but we were all worshiping the same God. At those times, the world, it's just wonderful because I remember my little bubble in Michigan and now it was just like, these are people who don't speak my language, who love the same God that I love. And they're lifting up their voices and they're worshiping God. It was absolutely amazing. And I don't know if you've ever traveled outside of the country, but there's those times when you meet someone who lives in that country, who loves God, and there's an immediate connection with them, an immediate connection. There's a unity there, cultural barriers don't matter. In preparation for today's sermon, I came across a story of, of a, a pastor who was uh, visiting a church in contemporary Africa, uh, and uh, he was administering the Lord's Supper. And as he was doing so, he looked out among the congregation, 
and he noticed that there were, among other people, that there were three tribes that were represented. The Ngoni tribe, the Senga tribe, and the Timbuka tribes. And the thing that amazed him is that they were all singing and praying together and partaking in the Lord's Supper together. And the thing that was so astounding to him is that in former years, each of these tribes loved to brag about how many men, women, and children they had killed, raped, or maimed. They hated each other. They would not be in the same room together unless they were going to kill the other, pe the other person. They were divided because of all of the bloodshed that went on, but now because of the shed blood of Jesus, these impossible tribes were brought together. This is an awesome story and an awesome reality. The seemingly impossible barriers are broken down in Christ. This is what God's goal was ever since sin entered into the world and began uh, its devastating and divisive effects. At that point, when our uh, first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, God was separated from his creation, and then the rest of creation was also separated from each other as well. Even the animals, the implication is in the book of Genesis that the animals did not run from us or attack us, but now they would run from us. They would attack us. The earth began to grow thorns, thus fighting against us. Hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanoes, devastating ice storms, and many other things, all the results of the chaos that sin brought into the world just seemed to fight against us. We're fighting against each other. The animal kingdom is fighting against us. Nature is fighting against us. Everything was in a state of chaos and war. And God's grand plan was to reconcile all things to himself. Paul makes this clear in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. In Colossians 1.20, he says this, and through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When Jesus walked on this earth for three years, this is what he did. It was all about reconciliation. Think about it. People, peoples whose bodies were sick and were basically fighting against themselves, creating misery, were made whole. He reconciled their bodies, if you will, to themselves. Storms that threatened to kill were calmed. And unlikely groups of people were brought together. I don't know if you've ever uh, looked at the people that Jesus called, uh, that, uh, called to follow him, the 12 disciples. But among them, there's two that stick out in particular. You have one who was a tax collector who worked for the Roman government and collected taxes from the Jewish people to pay to the Roman government, their, their, their oppressors. And also in that group, you had a zealot whose big aim, whose big desire was to overthrow the Roman government. They hated the Roman government. You have these two people 
who are brought together in Jesus. That's an amazing, amazing thing. Next week when we talk about our, how, what our response should be to all this, we're going to talk more about our current culture, our current cultural situation regarding race and religion and gender. There's a whole lot of talk in our current society about unity, but little effort towards real unity. We'll see that in an effort to unite, what happens is that they actually further divide. And it's no surprise, since they are driven and informed by the God of this world, Satan himself, whose big end goal is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's what he came to do. He comes, market, as an angel of light. He comes speaking about peace and about love and about unity, but he's got on his mind division and hate. That's what he does. God's goal was and is completely opposed to that. God's goal is one of reconciliation. Reconciliation between the, the different people groups of this world, but more importantly, reconciliation with God himself. That is his big goal. True reconciliation with each other is only possible once we are reconciled with God. If you're not reconciled with God, you can never truly be reconciled with other people. You simply cannot. Once again, think about those, the, 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 the tribes that we talked about earlier in Africa. There's no way that they would have been in the same room in a peaceful way unless God had reconciled them to himself and then to each other as well. Now, I will say in all fairness, there are many examples that we can look at in our, our contemporary culture and around the world um, where people from different uh, races and cultures and religions and, uh, and genders come together, right, for periods of time. But you'll notice that they're never lasting. They never last very long because they're not built upon a strong foundation. I'll just admit freely that we in this church uh, could come together with Mormons to fight against abortion. We could do that because we both hate it and we both know that it's wrong. We could even come uh, to, uh, as a church come to, uh, together with a, a radical feminist group to end sex trafficking in this world because it's evil and it's vile. But full unity is not possible because we do not have a common ground in Jesus. We could stand together uh, even with non-Christians uh, of other religions or the LGBT community or even atheists to end world hunger, or to, to dig wells in, in, in uh, uh, tribes and villages that don't have fresh water. But to fully be unified is not possible because whereas we have been reconciled to God as Christians, they have not. The only thing that can bring true and lasting unity and true and lasting peace out of turmoil is reconciliation with God. It's the only thing. In the midst of all this talk about barriers being broken down um, and us becoming one new man, Paul inserts this verse, uh, verse 16. He inserts this little phrase and he says this, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
you and I and everyone, we pick a lot of fights with each other, either on an individual basis or even at a national level. We have fights in our homes. We have fights in our neighborhoods. We have fights in our places of employment. We have fights in our schools. We have fights with religious opponents. We have fights with political opponents. Whole nations fight and war against each other. But here's what I want to say. When it comes right down to it, the greatest enemy of the human race, okay, is not any neighbor or coworker or classmate or family member. The greatest enemy of the human race is God himself, okay? It is God himself. The Democratic Party's greatest enemy is not conservatives. The Republicans' greatest enemy is not Democrats. The U.S.'s greatest enemies are not Russia or China or North Korea or Iran or Iraq or any other country. The United States' greatest enemy is God himself. It is possible to win wars against any of these other people. You can overcome your neighbor or a coworker, or you can even overcome another nation. But no one can ever win a war against God. You will lose it every time. Why is our culture in turmoil and unrest? It's because we have declared war on God. That's why. The world by large has suppressed the truth of God, has believed a lie, and has worshipped money. That's our God. Entertainment, that's our God. Science is our God. The world's philosophies are our gods. Everything but God. Oh, they pretend. They pretend to tolerate Christianity. They assure us that Christianity still has a place in the U.S., but they won't allow it in the public square. It should have no place in government. It should certainly have no place in our schools. And soon, it will have no place in our private homes either. The world hates God. In a minute, we're going to talk about the peace that Jesus brought into the world. But that peace has to be held in tension with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, listen to what he says. He says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm confused. I'm confused, <laughs> right? Well, the meaning, I believe, is found in the next several verses, 35 and 36. He says this, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What he means is this, as long as there is sin in the world, those who are against God will hate those who love God. Those who are against God will hate those who love God, even if it's someone in your own family. 
someone in a, in a place that you've worked at for years in a school. They will hate you. This is why several weeks ago we mentioned that we could never really have true peace with the world. We cannot be unified with them because they hate us because we love God. And it's not necessarily that they hate us. They hate God. They hate the God that we serve. And since they can't get to him, they're going to get to us, his children. I'm going to make your life miserable here. So why is there so much conflict in the world? It's because we're at war with God Almighty. And as long as that's a reality, true peace and unity with others is absolutely impossible. The Father sent the Son into the world to reconcile all things to himself. He sent Jesus, the Prince of Peace, into the world to bring true peace to the world. The word for peace in the Old Testament is a wonderful word. It is the word shalom. Shalom. Shalom held a wide range of connotations. It meant wholeness. It meant health. It meant security. It meant well-being. It meant salvation. It could be applied equally in a whole range of different contexts. It could talk about a person's, uh, the state of their being, them in themselves, that peace that they have within themselves. It, could, it, it also could be used in the context of a relationship between uh, two people or between two nations. And most importantly, it was used in the context of the relationship of God and humanity. God and humanity who are at war together could be at peace, could be in harmony. True across the board peace is what God's ultimate goal is is. True peace meant peace. The peace that God is looking for is a peace within yourself where you're free from anxiety and fear and depression. It's a peace with other people, which is absent, uh, the absence of conflict or wars. It's a peace with even the animal kingdom, right? to where they're not fighting against us, where we're not allergic to them. It's a peace with the environment, to where there's no more thorns, there's no more famines, there's no more natural disasters. This is God's goal, desire for the world. And most importantly, it's a peace with your maker. It's a peace with God himself. It was wholeness, it was harmony with everything and everyone. This is what Jesus offered to the world. Think about it. You look at Jesus' earthly ministry and you see him constantly reversing, undoing the effects of sin, particularly in the sin's effects on relationships with people. I love it. Jesus, here he is. He's in a room with his disciples and as they're in a hot debate about who's the greatest, what does he do? Jesus stoops down, assumes the posture of a servant and washes their feet. He washes their feet. That was the lowest servant's responsibility. No one wanted that. In this act of humility, 
Jesus was putting forth unity. He was calling for unity. Why are you fighting? Why are you doing this? Look at what I'm doing. And then think about this. In the, in the midst of the Jews and their extreme hatred for the Gentiles and the Gentiles' extreme hatred for the Jews, in the midst of that, what does Jesus do? He takes a cross upon himself, walks up a hill, is nailed to that cross so that he can reconcile these two groups that are fighting against each other. They're fighting and Jesus is Father forgive them, right? Jesus is seeking reconciliation to both groups, to God and each other as well. God didn't want Jews and Gentiles fighting. God didn't want nations fighting. He didn't want employees fighting. He didn't want classmates fighting or siblings fighting or, or, or spouses fighting. He wants unity and that's what Jesus came for. God took Sinful Gentiles and sinful Jews plucked them out of their sin, washed them in the blood of Jesus, and made them into one new person. One new person. He says this in the latter part of verse 15 when he says this, that he might create in himself one new man in place of, of the two, replacing the two. This new refers to a difference of in kind and in quality, to a completely new model, unlike anything that existed before. The new person in Christ is not simply a Jew or a Gentile that, has, uh, that happens to be a Christian, he is no longer a Jew, he is no longer a Gentile, but a Christian. Everything else is former. In Christ, in Christ's ethnicity was set aside. And what was primary has now become secondary. Whereas Jewishness was primary, now it's secondary. Yes, they still had, um, they could still celebrate their heritage and their cultural and their distinctives. But even those gave way to a new culture, a new heritage. Last week I mentioned many of the significant racial and gender and class divisions that were present in the first century when Jesus and his apostles were on the scene. We saw uh, such great divides as Jew and Gentile, which fought against each other. We saw male and female. We saw the, the males looking down on the females as, as inferior. We saw uh, the, uh, uh, the, the slave and the master, uh, one who is in authority and one who's not in authority, one who could call the shots and one who had nothing to say. And we saw Greek and barbarian. In Christ, all of those divisions are broken down. A new people were formed called Christ followers. A completely new people were formed, Christ followers. I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. I want you to see this for yourself. This is an amazing thing that we take for granted. Here's what he says. Galatians 3, 26. 
For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And now listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So a couple of things I want you to notice in that. First of all, he calls us all sons. Does that mean that when you become a Christian that you become a male? No. He's using figurative language there because a son was the one who received the inheritance. And what he is saying is male and female, you're all sons. Why? Because you all equally receive an inheritance. You are full heirs. And the other thing that he mentions here is he mentions that they're heirs according to the promise. And it, it should remind us of what he said in, in Ephesians 2.12, where he says that you Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were strangers. You were on the outside looking in. No longer were they strangers. Now they were full sons. They were full heirs. Peace via reconciliation with God was what we needed most. It's what we need most. And it's the only foundation for every other form of true peace in this universe. This is what Jesus offered, but the world rejected Jesus. Therefore, they rejected the peace that he offers. As a result of that devastating decision, Strife and conflict will continue in this world until Jesus comes back and makes all things right. It doesn't matter what political party is in control. It doesn't matter how much they talk about peace uh, and unity or whatever it is. Without the peace of God, there can never be true peace. Questions that I want to ask you today is this. Do you have this peace with God. Do you have this peace with God? Are you in harmony? Are you in shalom with God? Some of you may be thinking, maybe you're a non-Christian here today, and you're thinking, well, I'm not hostile towards God. I don't, I, I, I don't hate God. I don't hate his people. I'm not fighting against him. I just don't buy into this. Jesus was very, very clear when he said, if you are not with me, Yes, you are against me. There is no neutral ground here. There is no in-between. You are either with God or you are against God, even though you may not feel hostile towards God. So how does one get this peace with God? Well, Paul and Jesus are crystal clear, as many as the other New Testament writers are as well. Uh, beginning with the words of Jesus in John 3.16, Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. To not perish means that God is not your enemy anymore, that you're no longer an object of his wrath, that you are at peace with God. 
Paul's statement in Romans 5, 1 is even more clear. He says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In both of these verses, you have the means by which uh, we are declared righteous in the eyes of God and by which God's wrath is turned away from us, namely faith, faith. Jesus said, whoever believes, that's faith, and Paul said, we are justified by faith. I hope you realize that you can never work your way into God's presence. You can never do enough good works. Your good works will never outweigh your bad. And even if they did, at the end of the day, every single sin you've ever committed, even that tiny little white lie is still worthy of the death penalty in God's economy. You've heard me say this many times before. You and I live in sin every day. It's no big deal to us. It's no big deal to us. We see it on the TV every day. We see it in our neighborhoods every day. It's no big deal to us. But it is a huge deal to God, who is completely holy. His eyes are too pure to even look upon a single sin. You and I can't meet God's standard of perfection, but one person did. One person did. He was able to do it, and he actually did it for us. And I want to say this. Jesus didn't have anything to prove here. Uh, coming to earth as a human and living the perfect life was not on some kind of like Trinitarian bucket list, okay, of things to do before eternity ended, right? Uh, it wasn't that. Why did he come? For God so loved the world. He looked at us in our sinful state in rebellion against him. And what was he filled with? Hatred, animosity. No, he was filled with love, with compassion, with mercy. And so he sent his son to do what we could not do. And then his son was punished for what we could not do, namely live an absolutely perfect life, which is what God requires of all of us. It is faith in who Jesus is and what he has done that makes us right with God. This is how it's always been. You look all the way back to the Old Testament. You look at, the, at Abraham, the first guy that God called uh, in order to establish the Jewish nation to which the Messiah would one day come and save the world. Abraham is brought out and God makes this outrageous promise to him that this old man is going to have a child and it is his wife who's, who's never born a child and way past childbearing years that she's going to have a child. And what is Abraham's response? In Genesis 15, 6, it says this, And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It was his faith that made him righteous. Next week, we're going to talk further about the implications of God bringing us together as one new person. But for now, what I want to do as we close is I want to extend an invitation. I want to extend an invitation to anyone here who may not know the Lord. Anyone who still may be far off, as our text says, because of what Jesus has done, you can be brought near. You can be brought into the family of God. And, and this is what I want to say. Don't leave here today 
without getting it right with God, without getting right with God today. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not. Well, there's still things that I want to do. No, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So consider what I have said. Think about Jesus' claims about who he is, what he has done. Look at this world. See if Jesus, uh, it, uh, see if what Jesus told us about this world isn't coming to pass. It is, right? It's all around us. Consider all this and believe. And when you do so, you who were once far off, separated from God, are now brought near and brought into unity with God. It's an amazing thing. Don't leave here without doing that. I'm just going to say this. If you're not sure where you stand with God, please talk to me or talk to someone who can share, who can, who can introduce you to God. I will drop any conversation uh, with anyone um, and talk to you because it's that important. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it shows us who you are. You are amazing, amazing, amazing. You did the impossible. You brought conflicting parties together. And you still do it today. I pray, God, that you would unify us as a body. I pray, God, that uh, us who are in here who love you, who have given our lives to you, Lord, I pray that you would bind us together in unity. Help us to lay aside our differences, Lord. Please help us not to let the enemy bring any divisions within us. And I pray that your church across the United States and across this world would be unified as well, that we would be intent on one purpose, and that, we, and that would be to exalt Jesus Christ in truth, that we would hate sin, that we would love what is right, and that we would pray for the lost and get out there and share the gospel with them, and that we would see thousands and hundreds of thousands of people come to know you. We just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.